I spent this week attending two funeral services. And one was for my cousin, Rick, another for the mother of our aunt, Joanne. And what struck me pretty immediately at Rick's service was that it became apparent really quickly that the priest who was presiding didn't really know Richie. Uh, I don't know if any of you have been to a funeral where this is the case, but for me, what happened was that the words the priest was saying kind of fell pretty flat. And in fact, I mean, the words were like technically accurate, but they, they didn't have the life that the people who were sitting in the congregation held about our cousin. So it was technically accurate that the priest said, you know, that Richie loved to bowl and that he used to travel and compete. That's technically accurate. But what we knew sitting in the congregation was that Rick wasn't just good at bowling. Rick was a stellar bowler, right? Like Rick loved bowling. He spent much of his life at the bowling alley. He was passionate about it. And Rick never really struck me as a person who got passionate about much, but he was passionate about bowling. Now, my other experience at uh, my Aunt Joanne's mother's funeral was quickly different. The people that were up and sharing about who this woman was, who is Grace, they knew her intimately, and you could feel it in the room. It was palpable. And it was really a celebration of who Grace was. And it occurred to me that what really impacted people's experience of these events wasn't so much what was being said as much as um, how well they knew the people. Now, for those of you visiting, we've been taking the last Lenten weeks to, to search through this theme of being shaped by Jesus. And today we're going to turn our attention to the concept of how Jesus shapes us for worship. And, um, you know, as Todd and I were talking this week, we, we felt a little bit like, where, where are we going with this service? Because if you look at the text of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, there's like a lot going on. And Todd and I had some questions about, is this really the text that, that we want as an example of what shows us what true worship is? So I want to explore that a little bit, because the, the truth is, I've grown up in the church, and we've had services much like this morning, and this is how I remember Palm Sundays, and I don't know if this is true for everyone in the room, but I remember Palm Sundays as bright. I remember Palm Sundays as filled with children. I remember Palm Sundays as filled with branches. 
And I don't know that I've given a lot of thought to the story of Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem. And as he enters, something is going down in this passage. And it's more than meets the eye. So as Jesus is entering the city, he is greeted by people waving branches. And I just want to invite you to take a moment to look at your bulletin this morning. Because Winona has made us a beautiful image of branches. You can just imagine Jesus entering the city with people waving branches. I mean, this is unusual activity, right? They're laying their cloaks before him and they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And we are told in this story that the city of Jerusalem was stirred up. Now, as the bystanders are watching what is unfolding as Jesus is coming into the city, they're asking themselves the only question that makes sense to ask in this moment. I mean, think about it. If you're observing this going down and you're seeing Jesus and you're seeing the response of the people in the city, the only question that makes sense to ask is, who is this? And it's the central question of our faith, isn't it? Who is this? I also think it's fair to say that the central question of our faith, the seemingly simple question of our faith, isn't really simple at all. In fact, this story in Matthew is far from simple, and the complexity is found in the weight of this vast, expansive question. When you think about all the facets of that question, I think about that as people were remembering, who was my cousin Richie? Who was Grace? How do you answer that question? Who is this person? There's a lot of ways, right? You can think about who they are historically. You can think about who they are personally, relationally, existentially. Many, many facets to this question. And the people of Jerusalem respond to this question with a very technically accurate answer, right? Oh, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. It's technically accurate. They're not wrong. And yet something isn't quite right. And we don't get that today because we usually end the story here, right? But in just a few days, this city is going to turn completely upside down. And these people who are waving branches and greeting Jesus into the city of Jerusalem have either radically shifted their opinions or they're just nowhere to be found. And Jesus is taken up in front of Pontius Pilate, in front of the priests and the elders, and his execution is being demanded by the city. 
so what is going on here? I mean, these, are they the same people? And if not, where are all these exuberant fathers on Friday? We don't know. So will we celebrate this day with palm processionals and joyous music? I've been wondering if I've ever really thought about this story fully in its context. Or if I, like the Judeans in this story, have been caught up a little bit in the frenzy. Walter Brueggemann says, readers unfamiliar with this gospel story might conclude that this triumphal entry represents the final stage in the world's response to Jesus, rather than a prelude to the final rejection. The New Interpreter's Bible puts it well. It says, even in the midst of its grand gesture, the people of Jerusalem have all of the notes, but none of the music. But fear not, because I'm not just going to be dirty this morning, I promise. While there are deeply challenging undertones to this story, the circumstances of the event, there is also tremendous hope to be found in this story. And the hope isn't dependent upon the actions of these branch-waving Judeans, but the hope is to be found in the central question of the bystanders that are looking on, who is this? Now, we've been exploring this question a lot the past several weeks. There are a lot of ways to explore this question of who is Jesus, but I might suggest that we start by just remembering the encounters that we have been observing. We've been introduced to Jesus many times through many encounters where Jesus is meeting people. In his nighttime conversation in John 3, we see a Jesus that is patient with a people who are cautiously approaching him through Nicodemus. Right? He's inviting his followers to investigate the mystical nature of the world. He's inviting them into new life that's born of spirit that he describes as a wild wind. In John 3, Jesus is the Son of Man, a teacher from God, mystical and frustrated and patient. This is Jesus. But in John 4, we see Jesus meeting a woman at the well, and we get a whole new introduction where Jesus is fully embodied and asking for a drink. Jesus is a Jew, right? She calls that out right away. Why would I, a Samaritan, give you a Jew a drink? 
And we observe Jesus in this story and trusting this Samaritan woman who has suffered, who has been pushed to the edges of her own society, who comes from the wrong side of the tracks. He's entrusting her with his full self. And it's through this vulnerable woman that Jesus brings faith and life to an entire community. In, in John 4, Jesus is a Jew. Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is the Messiah. He's physically thirsty and direct and brave. In John 9, we observe Jesus challenging the assumptions of his disciples when they're asking, who sinned, this blind man or his parents, that he, that he became blind? Jesus' name, bad question. Jesus is challenging the assumptions of his followers, and he is challenging the assumptions of the elite who take this, this encounter of healing and turn it into an investigation. In John 9, Jesus is the light of the world, a healer, compassionate, subversive, and challenging. And then in John 11, we see a Jesus who is completely moved by grief. And he goes back to Judea, where he has been under the challenge of death. And his disciples are telling him, don't go back there. It's not safe. And when he hears that Lazarus has died, he goes back and he is present to Mary and Martha. And as Todd said so beautifully last week, he liberates Lazarus from death by calling him to come out. In John 11, Jesus is the resurrection and the life, daring and grief-stricken and comforting. Throughout Lent, we have been introduced to Jesus over and over again by the author of John's gospel. And all of these encounters have been building our knowledge of who Jesus is, both personally and theologically. And today we're being introduced again, the celebration of Jesus entering into Jerusalem is documented in all four gospels. And they're all a little bit different. But the differences are not accidental. Each gospel is displaying different perspectives on this central question, who is this? And today we're hearing the story from the perspective of Matthew. And Matthew, make no mistakes, has opinions about this question of who Jesus is. He's got opinions. And so from the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we see the author building a case that Jesus is not just a man, but he is in fact the promised 
king of Israel, the one who will reinstate the Davidic monarchy, which is a central marker of Israel's national identity. I mean, think about this. This is a people who has experienced exile over and over. They've been taken from their land. They get back to their land, and now they're exiles in their own land, sitting under Roman occupation. And so we're told by the gospel authors that Jerusalem is a community that is expectant. They are waiting for a king that's going to restore their national identity. It's going to restore Israel back to its former glory. And Matthew is leaving some traces in this story to poke us a little bit and say, hey, hey, this is the guy. This is the guy. And he does it in a very literary way. And you know me well enough to know that I really appreciate that. And so Matthew draws our attention to this passage in Ezekiel 9. And this image of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, this is an image that the people of Jerusalem, they know. They know this image. They know Ezekiel. But Matthew does something with this text that the other gospel writers don't do. He plays with poetry. And so we see in Zechariah 9.9, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Weird sentences. The Judeans would have understood this symbolism, but what Matthew does is he plays with this poetic couplet that's in this verse. And a poetic couplet for Hebrew scripture is when we hear something stated, and then in the next line down, we hear it stated again in a slightly different way. It sounds really repetitive to us, doesn't it? Jesus comes in lowly riding on a donkey. Next line, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Thanks for the clarification. And what Matthew does in his story is he gives us that image, right? Did anyone notice that as Jesus comes into the city, he's riding not only on a donkey, but on a colt as well. And what Matthew is doing is he's poking us. He's saying, guys, guys, if there's any question, people, this is the guy. He's not just riding on a donkey. He's riding on a donkey and a colt. Remember? He's pointing this out. And the author of Matthew is saying, this is our king. This is who this is. He's also going to argue throughout his gospel that, yes, this is the king and this is the king of the, Div the Davidic monarchy that we've been waiting for. And he is not the king that you were expecting. And even this image of a king riding into a city on a donkey, it's not what we expect. Matthew 
is building his case throughout his throughout his gospel to say that Jesus is also the son of God. He's the son of David and is the son of God. One of the ways that he does this additionally to his literary focus on the couplet is that this term that we hear about Jerusalem as Jesus is entering the city is that it was stirred up. And the Greek term that he uses there is informative because this stirring up, it's not just like, wow, people were really excited. He only uses that Greek term one more time in his gospel. And when he uses it is a few days later in chapter 27, when Jesus releases his spirit to God from the cross. And as he does this, we are told that the curtain in the temple is torn in two and that the earth quakes. That's the quaking that is happening as Jesus is riding upon a humble donkey into a waiting city. That this person comes in and the earth claps. Jesus as the son of God. And friends, as we have been introduced to Jesus over and over over the past several weeks through these prisms of the gospel exploding into multifaceted, colorful images of God, of Jesus, this is who we're meeting, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave his name that is above every other name. Friends, who is this? There's no doubt in my mind that who Jesus is shapes our worship. Is it Sunday services? Is it music? Words? Is it quiet openness? Holy reverence? Is it service? Who we think Jesus is will inform that. Our understanding of Jesus will tell us what constitutes worship, the words we sing, how we pray, the posture and orientation of our love. So perhaps this central question of our faith isn't really a question at all, but a relational 
pursuit. Not an answerable debate, but a never-ending quest. Who is this? Amen.